Well, welcome, and thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Ambassadors Forum weekly broadcast. At the Ambassadors Forum, our whole purpose is to equip every believer, everyone that we can, to better understand and defend their faith. That's the aim behind everything that we do, and that's my aim today from behind this microphone. My name is Brian Overholt. I'm filling in for Roy Swart this week and next week. I'm one of the newer faces at the Ambassadors Forum, but I'm not new to being an ambassador for Christ. Ever since I was a young man, defending the Christian faith has been my overriding passion. So I am praising God today that I get to serve as an ambassador alongside Roy and all the fine people that make this ministry go, and I'm thrilled to be here. We have something a little different lined up for you today, even though it really ties right into the last three episodes. As regular listeners will know, we had the privilege of teaching at the Student Connection Conference about a month ago. This is an annual event that is focused on encouraging Christian youth toward missions, locally, globally, everywhere. Each of the main speakers from that conference were guests on this show for the last three weeks. The whole thing was just wonderful. But there are some that might wonder, why is an apologetics ministry teaching at a conference about missions? I've known plenty of people who didn't think that apologetics and evangelism went together at all. For them, the word apologetics makes them think of debates over philosophical arguments, scientific evidence. They think of heated arguments that make adversaries out of the people that we're supposed to be reaching with the love of Christ. And it certainly would be hard to deliver the gospel to someone if you're in the middle of a heated argument. But that's not what apologetics is, biblically. 1 Peter 3.15 commands us to always be ready to make a defense. That's a, a reasoned argument, an apologetic, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but do this with gentleness and respect. And when would somebody ask you for reasons or a defense for the hope that's in you? Well, they might ask you after you have told them about the hope that you have in you. You've shared the gospel. They have questions or objections, and now they want to know, how can you believe that in light of this fact or that idea? In other words, these are the things that are keeping me from believing as you do, so how do you answer these objections? This is simply part of sharing the gospel. Apologetics is just part of evangelism. If we just deliver the gospel message and then walk away, we've only done half the job that Scripture is actually asking of us. But when we give our reasons, our defense, it is of utmost importance to obey 1 Peter 3.15, and do this with gentleness and respect. And when we are faithful to obey the command of God in 1 Peter 3.15, he does two things through us. He uses those moments, first of all, to reach the lost and to tear down barriers that may be standing in between them and faith in Christ, but also he's using that to solidify our own confidence and the confidence of other believers who may be there witnessing our defense of the faith they will be encouraged as well. And they'll often be inspired and emboldened to want to speak out for Christ themselves in their own circles just because they witnessed you do it and live to see another day. It can be so scary for a lot of people to even share their own personal testimony, let alone defend the Christian faith in the face of opposition. And so faithfulness in this area is an encouragement to the body as well as an aid to evangelism. Well, here's the thing. At Student Connection, we conducted a little experiment. 
One of our apologists, Adrian Toder, pretended to be an atheist and invited students to sit down with him and to try to change his mind. And do you think these kids got defensive or rude or flustered? Absolutely not. These were some amazing kids who understood the assignment perfectly. Now, they still didn't have all of the answers to all of Adrian's questions or objections, but that's okay. We wouldn't expect them to know everything, and Adrian can make himself into a pretty formidable atheist. But I want you to hear and be encouraged by just how well some of these youth did in trying to graciously defend their faith in the face of some pretty tough questions, and I'll be making some observations as we go. So here's Adrian and his first victim, a brave young man named Jacob. We're doing the uh, God Does Not Exist Change My Mind. I'm sitting down with... Jacob. Jacob. Jacob is how old? Uh, 17. 17. And Jacob believes in the ridiculous premise that God exists. Now, I explained to him that this is kind of a primitive view. The idea of gods and, and these, these things are kind of fairy tales made up by primitive people who didn't understand how the world worked, and so they invented gods to explain that. There was a god of thunder because we didn't know how thunder worked. And so now we know how thunder works, and so we don't believe in Thor. There was a god of the sun. People used to worship Ra, who was the sun. And now we realize it's not a god, it's a giant ball of hydrogen. And now for some reason, people continue to believe in the Christian god when they haven't gotten the memo that we've gotten past all this gods and stuff. There is no god. It's kind of a ridiculous idea. Prove me wrong. So my question would be, if you look at humanity in general, if you were to define good behavior, what would it be? So, good behavior. Well, not being a schmuck. Kind of the golden rule. Do what's best for people in general. Okay. What defines what's best for people in general? Well, because, you know what? So, say, we'll just use the example of Hitler here. For him and his people, if he would have succeeded, taking it theoretically here, if he would have succeeded, the aerial race of Germany would have dominated the world which would have been great for him, for his regime. And though it may have destroyed several people's lives, it would have been great for them. So my question is, in the world today, we see there's a common idea of what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for me. If evolution or if there is no God, then that makes sense because we're here, that's it. Once we die, we're dead, right? So what is it that makes us think that we should follow the general status of right behavior? Let's pause there for a second. Right off the bat, this kid Jacob has me impressed a ton. Out of the gate, he's bringing some sophisticated ideas, and he made one killer move there. So let's recap. Adrian started by trying to argue that our growing understanding of the natural world, in other words, science, has ruled out every other ancient god, and he says the Christian god has been ruled out too. Jacob didn't even address that argument. Maybe he wasn't prepared for it, or maybe he just wasn't comfortable with that particular debate, but in any case, he completely shifts the discussion to his sort of preferred territory by asking, how do you define good behavior? Well done. Adrian then says that good behavior to him is defined by the golden rule do what's best for people in general. And to that, Jacob says, well, Hitler was doing what he thought was best for his people. And from an evolutionary perspective, it's survival of the fittest. 
Hitler thought his race was the fittest and he was just helping evolution along. Isn't a more fit human race good for humanity in general? He's making an argument here about God being necessary for the existence of objective morality. Without God as an ultimate moral lawgiver, how do you say that what Hitler did was actually wrong? It's a brilliant point by Jacob. I'm super impressed, and he's absolutely right. There is only one moral lawgiver and judge over all others, and that is God. It says in Psalm 96.13, Before the Lord, for he is coming, he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's in his faithfulness. So there is only one moral judge who sets the standard, and that is God. Let's hear how Adrian responds to this. I understand what you're saying, and I think that the idea of what is best for people is, it could be a scientific question. Look, you say that if Hitler won, it would have been good for him. Well, the reality is it wouldn't have been good for people in general because he would have destroyed half the world in pursuing his ideas, and his ideas were wrong and, and terrible. So the reality is that if you want to know what's best for people, you can determine that scientifically. What leads to the most people having the best lives? So, you know, Christianity has some nice rules too. You know, do unto others, you'd have them do unto you. That leads to a better society. And we can analyze different people's ideas. We can say, look, if your idea is I should get whatever I can for myself as much as possible, well, we realize we can analyze that even scientifically and say, look, that leads to a less thriving world. The fewer people thrive under the conditions of that. So we say, that's a bad idea. Well, what about some good ideas? Well, good ideas is to work cooperatively and respect people and tolerate other people's ideas and not start wars just because you're greedy. Those ideas can be scientifically determined to drive to a better society, a better world. And so we don't need God to explain that. It just is. It's just better that way. And so we decide it's great. Okay, so Adrian is taking the Sam Harris approach here. Sam Harris, if you've not heard the name, he's a prominent atheist, scientist, and author, and he has written a book called The Moral Landscape, where he essentially makes the argument that Adrian is making here, which is that he thinks the greatest moral good is whatever causes the largest number of people to flourish. And so Adrian here says the same thing. The golden rule, among other things, causes people in general to flourish. So he says we don't need God to define moral good. We can measure what things are good by how they increase or decrease human flourishing. The weakness here in Adrian's argument is that you can only measure the morality of a thing, of an action, that way once you have defined what moral good is. And here he's defined it as that which increases human flourishing. You didn't discover moral good through scientific measurement. You defined it first and then said we can measure it. But how do you know that human flourishing is the ultimate good? Let's see how Jacob responds here. Okay, so you said that it would be better for society, which I agree with. What Hitler was doing was obviously, to put it in your words, wrong. What defines right and wrong? And you said that it was what is best for society. But my question is, if atheism and evolution is true, if we are here and that's it, why does it matter? Because maybe what I do now benefits someone else down the line. Why do I care? I'm gone. And so what is there in human nature that makes us 
think that it is a good idea to restrain possible benefits and pleasures for ourselves to preserve the benefits, those benefits for someone else down the line that isn't connected to us at all. Okay, now this kid, Jacob, he is sharp. I think that he saw the problem with Adrian's argument there, but he was maybe just searching a little bit for how to articulate it. Adrian's problem is that there is no objective foundation for his claim that human flourishing is the highest moral good. Why wouldn't it be better for all humans to be eradicated? Certainly the planet might do better if we were all gone, right? Why isn't that a higher good? If Adrian believes human flourishing is the greatest good, and I think a planet free of humans is the highest good, how can we determine which of us is right? Well, we can't. Without God, moral values are just opinions. The reality is that all Adrian can do is assert his moral opinion, because without God, no moral value has anything to rest on. So Jacob sort of gets at that point when he points out that nobody has any real reason to care about whether the things they do cause other humans to flourish. Without God, we would all be justified in merely looking out for ourselves. But the way that he frames the question, you know, what is there in human nature that makes us care, sort of turns the focus into explaining our behavior rather than asking Adrian to justify his views and explain what grounds his moral values. So let's hear what Adrian does with that. Well, two things. One is the reality that doing good to others makes them do good back to you and it creates a better society. And it is good for you to respect people and so on. Because if you go around stealing and murdering and killing, they're going to get back at you and that'll be the end of your short life. But it also, I think, is evolution has determined that. We as a species have survived because of our cooperative nature. Those that have this sort of mentality of cooperative thinking, you ask, what is it within us that gives us that feeling? Well, it's evolution. Those that had this idea survived, and those that did not in their genes and their disposition and so on were killed off because that's how evolution works. It is survival of the fittest. The fittest are those that learn to cooperate and create this sort of society. Those that are psychopaths and so on tend to be weeded out. And so you and I, we, we have these sorts of feelings in us that were derived by nature, by evolution. It happens because we survive better that way, and that's what we want. We want to survive better, and so here we are. All right, well, at this point, we can see Adrian does take full advantage of the opening that Jacob inadvertently left for him, which is now he is not answering the question of why should anyone care about how their actions affect others, either causing more human flourishing or less human flourishing. Why should they care about anybody but themselves? He's not answering that question. He's answering the question, why do people care about helping others and all? And now he's appealing to evolution, that this behavior, this desire to work together has arisen because of evolution, that we've been trained through natural selection to want to do whatever will lead to the survival of our species. And this is super convenient for Adrian because now he's able to skirt Jacob's argument altogether. And rather than explaining the forest, he just gets to talk about the trees. But this has happened to so many of us, hasn't it? Jacob is not alone here. I make these kinds of mistakes in conversations all the time. You think that you're getting somewhere with somebody 
But then all of a sudden, the conversation shifts in an unexpected way, and it can be hard in the moment to reel things back in. The answer to this problem is that we as Christians need to be bold enough to do this kind of thing more. I fall on my face in one conversation, but I learn from it, and I won't be likely to make that same mistake again anytime soon. There is just no teacher like experience, and Jesus has commanded us in Matthew 10, 16, that when it comes to doing the work of his kingdom, we need to be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, he says. Being a good Christian with clean hands and a clear conscience is imperative. That's the innocent as doves part of that equation. But if we lack the wisdom that comes from experience in sharing our faith and defending our faith, we won't be the effective tools that we could be in God's hand. And the best way we can become as wise or as shrewd as snakes, as Jesus commanded, is to be bold enough to seek out opportunities to share him with others. We will fail repeatedly, but that is just the process that God will use to sharpen you into the precision tool that he needs. So kudos to Jacob for having the courage to sit down across from Adrian and put himself to the test like this. It encourages me, and I hope it inspires some folks listening to this, to step out on faith and start speaking up for Christ. And I'll save you a little time and just tell you that it's at this point that Jacob switches gears to another line of argumentation altogether. Perhaps that evolutionary argument was unfamiliar territory, but I have to hand it to this 17-year-old. He is far sharper than I would have been at his age. And at no point in the rest of this exchange does he ever lose his cool, despite the fact that Adrian did not go easy on him. For everyone listening, be like Jacob in your conversations. Now, Adrian did eventually relent. He broke character to offer some praise to Jacob and some advice. Let's listen to some of that. Can we pause for a second here? I'm going to take my atheist hat off for just okay. a little bit. Let's go back to the beginning here. Let's do a little recap because you started out in some really good stuff here. And you let me off the hook. Okay. Uh, here's some coaching here. You started with morality. And you said, well, if your explanation for morality is whatever's better for society. And you said, well, why should I care what's good for society? Because why do yeah. I care down the road and so on? And I said, well, what we do as people matters because... It turns out that my life is better when I do things that are good for others because they do things good for me and so on. Yeah. I didn't answer your question. I skirted the question. You asked, why should you? Not, why will you? Because you're right. There might be some good reasons to be nice to people, but there's some awful darn good reasons not to be nice to people. And you touched on that and you let me off the hook. Your answer should have been great. If I can find a scenario in which what is good for you, Adrian, as the atheist, is to lie, cheat, and steal... I can prove to you it's good, that in the sense that your life will run better, does that mean you should do that? Whatever scenario you want, look at some dictator who has lived high on the hog and has murdered and cheated and robbed, and now he is rich and he has everything he wants. Should he have done that? Because based on my definition of what is good, is what's better for society or individuals or so on, well, what's good for him was to do that. And so now the question is, should he do that? If you can explain to me as an atheist, here's a scenario where under your definition of what's good, it turns out that you're doing things that we both agree are bad. You've now stumped me. According to my explanation, I am now advocating for doing what we both agree is evil. That's the idea. When I say we should do something, I am now giving you some sort of oughtness 
this is where the is ought fallacy comes in. Mm -hmm. you, I can't just describe something and say you should do that because then you can ask the question why? Why, why should why? I? Why? Okay, great. It's better for society. Why should I do what's better for society? It's it just better <laughs> because the atheist explanation for morality is a utilitarian one. If you want a good society, you should do things this way. But there's that big if. Do I have to do what's better for society or can I do what's better for me? If I want green grass, I should water it. But nobody would fault me for not wanting green grass. I could yeah. have a dead lawn. Who cares? But the question of do I want a better society and goodness in the world, that's not an option. And we both agree on that. That's not optional. But the reality is green grass is optional. Morality is not. Why? What's the difference? Because if we are, as humans, nothing more than matter, then there should be no difference between the green grass and the moral standard. Exactly. But there is, and the atheist agrees with you that there is. And he's going to try everything in his power to get around that question and say, well, are you saying we should kill and rape and murder? And the answer isn't yes or no. The answer is, well, you tell me. You tell me if we should, because on your definition, there are circumstances where we should because it's better for me. Mm -hmm. It'll lead to a better thriving for me. Yeah. Now you say, well, that's selfish of you. Well, okay. Why should I not be selfish? Without God, moral values are nothing more than preferences. Unbelievers and really everyone knows intuitively that moral values are not merely personal preferences. People want to be able to say that they are a good person and have that mean something. They want to be able to say that certain evils are undeniably wrong and Unfortunately, people want to deny God more than they want moral certainty. As it says in Romans 125, man, fallen man, has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Fallen mankind would rather have lies than God's truth. They'd rather live in moral uncertainty than recognize God's moral authority. Instead of worshiping him, they turn to worshiping the created things like nature, science, evolution, and survival of the fittest. It's a sad reality, but praise God that while we were yet sinners, rejecting God in much that very way, Jesus still chose to sacrifice himself for us, and he continues to draw people to himself. And praise God for young people like Jacob whom God has gifted with a passion for truth as well as patient hearts that honor God in their interactions with others. This has been a very encouraging example of 1 Peter 3.15 being lived out brilliantly. I am always thrilled to see a young person who can step out with boldness and courage and to put himself to the test to see if he can explain or defend his Christian faith in the face of opposition, as Jacob did here, and in doing so, maintaining a confidence that is still characterized by humility and gentleness and respect, just as the scripture commands us to do. And Jacob was not the only one who had the courage to participate in this experiment at Student Connection. We'll get to hear some of these other dynamite youth in action next time, so I hope you'll join us then. If you are a young person and you would like to be able to defend the faith with the same gentle boldness and confidence that Jacob demonstrated here, we invite you to join us. We train youth to do exactly this at our Apologetics Pizza Nights. And these events are, of course, named a Pizza Jetix. 
And every one of them is not only tasty, but a fast-paced discussion that is full of laughs while at the same time teaching kids how to use the Bible and critical thinking to find the answers to any tough question. So junior hires and high school kids, please come. We welcome you to join us. But we have other similar events for adults too. So college students and parents, we want you as well. Please come and visit us over at the Ambassadors Forum dot com or send an email to info at the ambassadorsforum.com if you'd like to request more information. And if you'd like to get notified of upcoming events, find us on Facebook or sign up for emails. And finally, these broadcasts are also podcasts now. So if you missed the beginning of this episode and would like to listen again, just go to the ambassadorsforum.com forward slash listen or look for the Ambassadors Forum podcast anywhere you get your podcasts from. Well, thanks for joining me today. And I just want to leave you with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And until next time, I pray that God will give you the courage to bring that message of reconciliation to those around you this week. Amen. Amen.